experience to feel, oh, the calm, I have no idea what he's talking about, or that's not my experience and that actually makes me frustrated, impatient, or doubtful. So sometimes the very uh, territory that we're passing through make it harder to feel that sense of, um, yeah, the peace, the calm, greed, hatred, delusion, very relaxed, not dominating my experience. Sometimes the conditions are such that that's something we're, we end up struggling with. And so to find any peace while there's that much turbulence is still the direction to head, this direction even towards the third noble truth, the direction of non-clinging. How do you accept turbulent times? So that might have been some people's experience. Other people might have noticed that if you hadn't kept saying, we're in the neighborhood of Nibbana, it would have really just been very peaceful. Every time you said that, it's like, where is it? Where is it? Is that it? Is that it? Is that it? Even just mentioning the word, you got me like looking and digging. I couldn't stop. I was like, how can I be close? What is it? Almost too much questioning, searching, interest, poking around. So uh, there are certain pitfalls that happen when we start bringing up Nibbana uh, in any way that we bring it up. Um, You might have experienced some of those. But I'm curious, what was your experience even just from that guided practice? Actually and gratefully, my experience was one of feeling quite calm, quite still. And sometimes for me, when I go there, the reverie is sort of like coming out of anesthesia. I feel very, very still. Mm -hmm. And it almost is like a disturbance to come back because I just don't want to be disturbed. I'm just in the breath, with the breath, just breathing. Mm. It's very, very still. Mm. And so sometimes um, coming back feels like an intrusion. I sort of want to stay there. I know that experience, and having investigated it, it's a sort of... uh, Dharma longing that <clears throat> has is becoming non-adaptive, so it actually has a bit of clinging and craving within it, and yet it's also nutritious to allow ourselves to to have the experience and know them in our heart and our mind. So it's one part nutritious, but if it sets up a a, a struggle. And like, I don't want to go back into that turbulent world. Then we start having dharma craving and clinging, which ends up undermining our ability to access those calm states. Can you say your name again? Uh, Paula. At, at um, At the start of the meditation, I assumed I was going to feel very peaceful because I have been in that state. Mm. And my mind was immediately full of planning and ideas. And I mean, it was just... 
And I was able to, um, to let go of that, each one that popped up, and gradually, and then it was very powerful feeling of um, the, um, the, the group. I could feel everyone. I could feel the, I don't know what the right word is, but the quality of, of the group experience. And that was, um, that really settled mm -hmm. me down. Um, I also am very appreciative of the term uh, Nibbana neighborhood because I have been in a place of uh, experiencing a lot of peacefulness, a lot of contentment over a period of time. And I, I, I'm tr I've been trying to understand it. And I, I think that's, I think, I think it's the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, David. Um, oh. I'm Sherry, and um, I don't think I've ever felt so relaxed. I, I feel kind of drugged right now, and um, I, I, I was able to feel myself striving to sort of get more of the experience and then, and then kind of sit back. And um, the visual was just so strong, I thought I was really on the river. And I had all my senses, um, even taste, because I was sipping my favorite latte. And it was, it was just kind of remarkable. Um, I'm not sure what else to say. I'm kind of in awe of the experience, um, that I could, I could actually feel this, and, and it, it, it's actually possible. Um, so I don't want to cling to the experience, but mm. I find myself, there's a little bit of clinging there. Mm. Um, so thank you. Thank you for this experience. It was just uh, mm. in, uh, wonderful. Maybe there should be cup holders on the boat <laughs> for whatever your favorite relaxed experience has. Yeah, David? Or, or Gary? Oh. Gary. Um, yeah. It, it was um, quite an amazing thing. I've been um, struggling with a lot of doubt and constricted heart. And actually, I've been up since 2.30 this morning. Mm -hmm. I couldn't go back to sleep. It was so painful to try to figure out how to work through this. It was very, very, um, a lot of suffering. And I was focusing on um, equanimity. And it was like, be equanimous, damn it. You know? yeah. <laughs> like um, and yeah, you know. Um, but I think these instructions, somehow it moved me to compassion. Mm. And um, it's, it's like suddenly I was floating and, and a lot of the, the doubt. And I, I don't know, I, I guess, I don't know if it's still there. Maybe it's still there, but somehow it's not front and center. Um, but I'm... I'm still trying to figure out what did I do wrong? Um, what, this is not an equanimity thing. This is 
how come, how come equanimity didn't work and this did? I still can't quite figure that out. Hmm. Not sure. <laughs> well, again, we're, we're, there can, um, we're beings, we are beings um, being con- heavily conditioned by the forces of dependent origination. And so out of skill, we're actually relaxing these forces. We're relaxing the driven nature of our mind, our conventional mind. But there are still underlying tendencies. And so we can't just sort of, again, move towards this, see it's, you know, deeply prefer it and just stay there. Because the mind will, and the heart will have underlying tendencies that, um, that come in and intrude upon it. Or, I mean, you use a little bit more aggressive language. They, they defile that peaceful, relaxed state. They begin to inflame the heart. And you can watch it happening. You're like, ah, oh, really? Okay, here, are the, here come these conditions. I'm getting this um, illness is coming. I'm getting a cold. I'm getting anger coming in. And I can't, I can't um, clear myself of it. It's gaining traction. I mean, I've watched 10,000 times my mind start to slide into these, like, wow, it, it's really choosing that. I can't seem to not choose it. And so I'm getting drawn in and then getting quite baffled by my obsessive longings or my fears again. And I'm like, this is not it, but I'm so trapped in it. And then that wave passes. And if I haven't done too much to reinforce my beliefs and if I can kind of be intimate within that wave, it'll pass. The conditions for that will pass. And then what's left over is a returning back to like a type of um, spacious calm, which things come and pass through, but they don't leave as much of a mark. And the more that's been true, the more easily I return to that space and the more steady and expansive it, it becomes. So, None of us in this room can just sort of choose to go there and stay there, or we would have by now. You'll watch, <laughs> you watch little things creep in, and watch my mind opt out of that many times, uh, many, many times to my chagrin, watching it take up fantasy, take up irritation, take up doubt, I'm having this very validating experience. And it's like, wait, is this right? Wait, wait, what's happening? Wait, wait, am I supposed to do this or that? It's like, no, no, shh, you know, don't go there. And all of a sudden, like, wait, wait, it's getting so confusing again. I'm like, ah, damn, I'm back in this doubt again. And then from within doubt, it, none of it makes sense. And But they said this and they said that. It's like, that's not the way. These questions are not gonna help me. I'm just in doubt. And if I, the more familiar I am with doubt, the more familiar you are with the lack of equanimity, it just sort of is a storm blowing through, doesn't scratch the sky, storm passes through, and then it, uh, the mind can return back to a more um, organic, peaceful state, which things are arising and passing through. And over time, it becomes harder for those things to really engage us. It's just, I know this pattern. So I'm not totally sure why equanimity wasn't 
uh, more accessible. That's how you're describing it, and your your experience. But the con- it's really the conditions were such that equanimity comes. And sometimes you can't see the conditions, like why greed now? It's like, well, that may not be the most interesting question because greed is really happening. Or why fear now? Like, makes no sense. I was just calm in a room, and all of a sudden this un untriggered fear just starts bubbling up through my system. And so the quicker you can not cling to the state and fight the fear, but be equanimous, let fear come and go, the more the fear comes and go without leaving a whole drama behind. And that's really, again, talking about the neighborhood of Nibbana has some of the tastes of Nibbana itself. So type of calm, a type of equanimity, um, type of presence, uh, not concerned, not so at that moment embroiled in concerns. Um, which is why being, uh, guiding ourselves to know how to live in that neighborhood, really it's the neighborhood of the third noble truth, it's the neighborhood of uh, healthy well-being in more and more circumstances, the more that that's the case, we'll see that that's actually where we can then get to know Nibbana more directly. But whether that happens or not, that neighborhood is a really good place to begin to orient towards. Hi, I'm Stephanie, and I'm your example of having caught a cold. And (laughs) And usually... I will fight it, I will resist it, I will <clears throat> be upset about it, and this morning I just relaxed and said it's like this. And the suffering of this stuffed up head and the runny nose and the coughing and all that is much less. Mm-hmm. It works. <laughs> nice. We'll do. Oh, hand sanitizer. One more. I'm uh, David. I I came out of last night uh, a lot of doubt and uh, just confusion and uh, I just wasn't really sort of right sized to the whole. Enlightenment and what it meant, and um, but and tried to package it, um, but it wasn't packageable at the moment. So I came into this morning just saying, uh, I don't. I'm going to see what's placed. I'm going to be open and see what's placed in front of me today, and I'm going to see. I'm going to see what I need to see. I'll see. Um, and it was similar to, you know, riding on the bow of the boat and just seeing what appears. Um, so the, the meditation, I, I was able to do that. And 
the only jarring moments were when there were a couple times you would say something that would make me, oh, am I like com comparing or am I achieving this? There was something a couple times of words you said that almost brought me back into that sort of comparing or judging or, but I was able not to, uh, I could see that and then get back on the bow. So, well, sweet. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure what all your experiences are right now. Um, they're probably varied. Um, but when we start moving into a conversational mode, one thing you'll notice is that if you stayed in an experiential mode, if you could talk about the calm, the well-being, um, the lack of greed, the lack of hatred, the uh, openness of mind as a direct experience, and if we could stay connected to that, then it wouldn't be such a heady experience. Um, but often as we start talking about this, we move out of that, and then you'll notice your mind has more of a tendency to kind of get a little more hung up on detail and trying to get the map right. And that can be, that can be useful in our tradition to kind of have some orientation to this topic of Nibbana and what happens around Nibbana. Um, but we'll lose a type of intuition from being closer to it if we start talking about it and we start uh, going into more of a conventional use of mind. So that's why I wanted to, um, if everybody could just hold this reference a little bit. Um, we are closer to what we're about to talk about, Nibbana, then when we'll be talking about it. Um, and then if we start to really feel our minds getting perplexed or confused, we're probably getting even further from it. Um, and yet sometimes to talk about it does um, land some confidence and it can give some support to why we're doing what we're doing and why our tradition is organized the way that it is. And there are some interesting maps of how to um, live closer to the neighborhood of well-being in which Nibbana is a part of that well-being. But so are other experiences that are not, um, not all the well-being is stuck in Nibbana. There is well-being um, before Nibbana and there's well-being after experiences of Nibbana. And Nibbana plays a role in that and helping us deepen that well-being. So we're going to move a little bit into a conversation and then um, take a much longer break for our bodies and stretching and whatnot. So in talking a little bit more about Nibbana itself, um, I wanted to bring in two things. One was that the Buddha Dasa um, article called Nibbana for Everyone. I was sent out in the homework. And what's really lovely about that <clears throat> is 
um, in Thailand, in Burma, probably in Sri Lanka. I've never been there. Um, Nibbana is easily framed from conventional views, like very few people have access to it. And to have access to it, um, you have to spend a long time ordained away from your families. And if that's not what you're going to do, then um, Nibbana is a very, very far away experience. And so he um, is a really, really revered um, Thai meditation master. And he's also a little bit provocative as a character, Buddhadasa. But he could then make some really bold statements that kind of would shake up people's um, views and opinions. And so that article, um, Nibbana for Everyone, talks about Nibbana as the cooling off of the mind, the mind that's agitated, inflamed, embroiled, uh, haggard, uh, stretched, divided, fragmented by all the competing urges and needs of conventional use. Um, where greed, hatred, and delusion have their way with us and then they calm down, but not so much that we ever really put them to rest because the way we were conceiving of the world makes it ripe for them to come crashing in again. So uh, Buddha Dasa is quoted as saying, Nibbana is the coolness which results from the quenching of defilements. And in that article, Nibbana for Everyone, Nibbana can be used in one way, in a more broad sense. Nibbana is the tone, the tonality of heart and mind that have cooled as these agitating forces um, start to be dispelled from our heart and our mind. We develop other capacities to deal with stress, other capacities to navigate life. And so we don't lean so heavily on greed, hatred, and delusion for getting what we want or protecting ourselves from what we fear. And so they begin to diminish. And that, that experience of their diminishing, either momentarily by taking a breath and calming down, taking five, ten breaths, calming down, in a broad sense, that's sort of your mind nibbanaizing, cooling down from its agitation, or again over a longer period of time, seeing that your mind is not just happy because the conditions are perfect for it being happy, but it's less and less troubled by a greater range of life, less and less torn. There's room for compassion when you see uh, violence happening or people suffering, the world suffering. That compassion is not, it becomes less and less of a painful, agitated, fraught state. And the heart can actually hold compassion while in contact with something unpleasant. So we have these other capacities of heart, these paramis, um, that as they strengthen and develop, as they get cleaner and they work together better, they're more of, what, of how we navigate life. And these um, uh, maybe more primitive protective mechanisms of greed, hatred, and delusion are less needed. So as those patterns are uh, softening in your mind, relaxing, breaking apart, uh, not arising, that movement is described as the progress of the third noble truth. It's also described here by Buddha Rasa as the cooling of the mind 
the mind knowing Nibbana or Nibbana having, um, being expressed by the heart and the mind. That's Nibbana in a very accessible, broad sense, the Nibbana of the mind. Other people I practice with would struggle with that and would probably um, argue because they, if you go to say Upandita's monastery or Pauk's monastery, they have something much more specific about what Nibbana is. Um, but you still have other great teachers who are using it in this way, in a broad sense, in a broad sense of, if you've been around somebody who's practiced for a while and you sense that um, well-being inside that they've cultivated and they seem to be able to handle the challenges of life better without being so thrown. Um, in that broad sense, that seems to be a valid one way, that uh, one valid way that Nibbana is talked about. And hopefully that, that does feel tangible, that does feel accessible. That lines up um, some with uh, this quote that uh, Joseph Goldstein says a lot, which is helpful. One, one thing I like about Joseph is he's able to say things um, simply, and I watch my mind go from a very complex, confused state, and it drops in, and I feel a relief of that. And so Joseph has a, a quote that I think is helpful when we, when we are talking about Nibbana, and it's really, he's talking about um, clinging, and we'll talk about the role that Nibbana and clinging play together. But Joseph has this uh, now famous quote that he uses a lot. All the Buddhist traditions converge on the understanding of what liberates the mind. It is summed up very succinctly in one teaching of the Buddha. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this has heard all the teachings. Whoever has practiced this has practiced all the teachings. Whoever has realized this has realized all the teachings. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Non-clinging can be uh, understood on two levels. The first level is non-clinging as a non-sectarian instruction for practice. What to do? Don't cling. There's no Buddhist school that says cling. How to practice in the world? Don't cling. It hardly matters what form we build around that. We cannot cling in a Tibetan house, not cling in a Zen house. We cannot cling in a Theravadan house. The essence of the One Dharma, the book that he wrote, is the same. But non-clinging is not only an instruction for practice, so it's a way, to, uh, a way to help our minds suffer less. It's also a description of the awakened mind. If we want to know what enlightenment is like, what awakening is like, we can practice the mind of non-clinging, non-fixation, non-attachment to anything at all. It's the mind of open groundlessness. So I'd like to um, talk with you a little bit more is about um, Nibbana and non-clinging and how they work together. 
Another interesting uh, aspect is that even though Nibbana seems to be the described as the goal, the ultimate goal of the path, the Eightfold Path, um, said several times in the book The Island by the authors and people that they quoted, um, was an idea that even though Nibbana is the goal, most of the emphasis was put on the path. So talking about the goal may not be as helpful as talking about the path that heads to the goal. We just need to talk about the goal enough to clarify the path, but the work done is not obsessing about the goal and wrangling over the goal. The goal is there to just help us make sense and walk towards the goal. The liberation comes as we get closer to the goal and meet the goal, but it's not we're not obsessed about the goal itself. We're obsessed about a heart and a mind that are getting closer to that goal. That's a heart and a mind that are freer of suffering. Gil Fransdale uh, said a similar thing in an article that he wrote. When a person is thirsty, what's important about the water is not its chemical properties, but that it quenches thirst. Similarly, for someone who's suffering, what's important about Nibbana is not so much its nature, but that its attainment extinguishes suffering. So as we talk about uh, Nibbana, um, sometimes conversations will try to go in and really clarify what Nibbana is. People might describe experiences of being in contact with Nibbana, but that, while that is interesting, much more beneficial to the reduction of our suffering is not what is this thing called Nibbana, and can I get that right? much more important to our suffering is heading towards it, possibly making contact with it, really valid contact with it, and then experiencing your mind stream afterwards. That is the reduction of suffering. So getting into the, the haggling over what Nibbana is and trying to describe something that um, many people have found there's really no language for. We get very perplexed by that. But if we put the emphasis really is just enough description of it that we understand what the path is heading towards but then spend more time uh, on the path of our freedom and see how Nibbana plays a role in that than getting lost in the entangled in what Nibbana is itself. Just do a tiny bit more and then we'll take a real break for your bodies, I promise. In the, um, in the third discourse that the Buddha gave, what had happened was that he had gone to meet his five disciples and gave the first discourse. And then shortly after that he gave the second discourse and supposedly all five of them became arhats. And that group of five plus the Buddha hung out and people met them. There were other uh, practitioners and they gathered around him until it got to about 60. 
And at some point the Buddha says, um, please, uh, I guess the, to- the idea was they were all uh, completely free, so please walk in different directions and see who you can help. And what the Buddha did at that point is he went back very close to where he was uh, enlightened. And he, there was a community there that had um, uh, fire worship and possibly um, snake worship. They definitely believed in um, purity through fire. And <clears throat> I can't tell if they were plagued by a snake or if that snake was a part of their, their, their practices because there is some snake worship in India. But the Buddha comes and he uh, spends a night very near the snake and they're all worried for him in the morning. He and the snake are friends. <laughs> the snake's curled up in his begging bowl. And so this community had about a thousand practitioners um, under various teachers, and they all um, became his disciples. So he went from having 60 disciples to now a thousand 60 disciples. He inherited a thousand disciples uh, that morning when they all converted, or over the course of the day when they all came back and met him. And he gave a third sermon. And the third sermon, <clears throat> he uses this language, which you may have heard before. So they've people where they believe about purity that comes through fire. A lot of their metaphors are about fire and qualities of fire that burn things pure. And the Buddha um, gives them a talk and says, uh, actually, the, the fire you should be concerned of is that all your senses are on fire. The eye is on fire. The nose is on fire, the tongue is on fire, your body is on fire, your ears are on fire, your mind is on fire, your perceptions are on fire. That sort of was a different frame. And he said what they're on fire with is greed, hatred, and delusion. And the rest of the discourse is how do we extinguish this fire of greed, hatred, and delusion that is burning our senses we get in, taken in by what we're seeing and then agitated by it. We get taken in by what we're hearing and we burn, we're inflamed, we struggle over it. Same with the body and all the other sense doors and the mind. So the mind is on fire, the heart is on fire with greed, hatred, and delusion. All fire needs fuel. And the fuel behind greed, hate, and delusion is clinging. In Pali, the word for clinging is upadana, which also was used at the time to talk about fuel for a fire. And so that's also used in this metaphor that uh, our senses, our experiences are on fire with dukkha, with suffering, with greed, hate, and delusion. The fuel causing this fire is upadana, is clinging. It's one of the steps in dependent origination, right before we begin really selfing, creating a lot of drama of self, there's clinging. The practice of non-clinging, when we practice non-clinging, we're removing fuel from our greed, hatred, and delusion. So as we practice a heart and a mind that are non-clinging, we remove the fuel that causes greed, hatred, and delusion. Nibbana, 
when we talk about Nibbana and the neighborhood of Nibbana, we start getting to some of the characteristics of what this Nibbana is. The root of the word Nibbana is to extinguish or to blow out. And so there are metaphors where Nibbana is the blowing out of this fire, the blowing out of this flame, the extinguishing of this flame. And putting this together, Nibbana is part of our conscious experience that helps to uh, blow out the aggravation of greed, hatred, and delusion, blow out this burning discontent that we feel a lot. And so this is where we're starting to turn the conversation into more direct contact with Nibbana uh, and what it does, what role it plays for in our tradition So that's what we're going to talk about next, is um, Nibbana as a part of our liberation. And then some, what is Nibbana? What can we say about Nibbana itself as a more specific element of experience and not so much just the neighborhood around it? But let's take a break first and make sure that our hearts and minds and bodies are relieved. So we're going to take a silent 15-minute break. Then we'll come back and we'll... Uh, go deeper into